All right, so we've been working our way through these narrative books uh, so far. So a lot of what we've been considering is we've just been tracing the story of redemption through Genesis uh, up to Samuel. And, and, and now you may look at, look at the, the schedule for this week and say, Job, what's going on? Why are, we, why are we not going on into Kings? Why are we stopping? Why are we moving to Job? What's, what's the deal? Why, why wisdom literature? Well, as we've been considering this story of redemption, considering just the role, uh, especially in the last few weeks with Joshua Judges and then Samuel, that the king was to play in the life of the people, it's, it's important to recognize that this, this king, uh, he was really meant to lead the people and guide them in their love and obedience to God. And, and there's really two aspects of that that we're going to see in the scriptures. It's, there's an aspect to his leadership that involves leading the people in terms of obedience to the commands of God, right? So we've considered that the important role that the king plays in leading the people in obedience to the covenant. So he was to be sort of a, a, a leader, not just in his own life, but in encouraging the, other, the people themselves to be obedient to the law, to remain faithful to the law. But along with that, what we're going to see in Scripture is that he doesn't just lead the people uh, in terms of their morality. He also is to, to be a source of and an example of wisdom. So he's to teach them not just to obey the commands of God, but to live obediently um, under the providence of God. And so it's important that we recognize the role that both of these things play in the life of the king. So wisdom is, is a crucial aspect of the leadership of God's king. And, and it's not surprising that when we think of the wisdom literature as a whole, as its own genre, a lot of this literature is deeply associated with, with the king of, of Israel, or the Davidic king. Now, we're, we're coming to and starting with the one book that in a lot of ways is kind of the exception to that because there's no clear tie to a king, though I think what we're going to see is that Job does serve as a kind of example of godly leadership. So there's several ways in which that, that theme of wisdom and wisdom being sort of something that, that is crucial to godly leadership, it's going to be a, a key aspect of Job's own life. But all that's to say that, again, wisdom is crucial for what it means to lead God, God's people, for what it means to be God's people. And so the king is to be sort of a paragon of wisdom for God's people. And when we say wisdom, you know, again, in, in talking about that in contrast to, to the, the law or obedience to God's commands, it's, it's a recognition that to live well, as we've talked about living well in God's kingdom, well, to live well in God's kingdom, it's not simply a matter of obeying those clear commands that God gives us. That's absolutely the case. But every day, all of us are faced with numerous decisions, numerous circumstances or issues that are uh, maybe somewhat important, very important, or not very important. And all of those circumstances and decisions we look at in our lives may not seem to have any clear sort of direction in the Scripture about how we're to live our lives when it comes to those circumstances. So on the one hand, yeah, the Bible can tell us really clearly there's really no situation in which it's okay to murder somebody. So we know really universally that there's a morality that the Bible commands us. Do not murder. Do not lie. And yet at the same time, the Bible doesn't give us any clear directions on what college we're to go to or what we should eat for dinner or what jobs we're to pursue or who we should marry or how we're to treat a particular illness or even what the speed limits in our neighborhood should be. So these are all questions that the Bible doesn't address specifically, right? But... They're not questions that the Bible is silent on per se. And so when we think about, 
you know, what does it mean to live well in God's world? It can be easy to sort of look at those, those clear uh, instructions that we have in Scripture and sort of draw the line there and say, well, when the Bible talks about these things, yes, outside of that, we don't know. But that's not what the Bible would have us think. That's not the, the, the idea here. And this is where the wisdom literature comes in and shows it that there's a category of knowledge and understanding that gives us the kind of general principles that we need, not just to live moral lives, but to live wise lives in God's world, to understand how God's world works and how we, we are to best live within it, how we're to make those kinds of decisions in ways that are honoring to God, in ways that reflect His world. And so just as the king is to lead in obedience to the law, he's to be someone who, who not just understands wisdom, but to leads the people, leads the people in wisdom. And so we, we have a whole genre of scripture, right, devoted to sort of the law and what it means to live well in a moral sense. But we also have a whole genre of, of, of scripture that, that really outlines what does it mean to live wisely within God's world or within God's kingdom. And so before we dive into Job, I think it's just helpful for us to just kind of have a general understanding of, you know, what is, what is it that characterizes the wisdom literature? And what is wisdom literature about? And, and how, how do we then come to Job understanding the nature of biblical wisdom and make sense out of the story of Job? Because the story of Job is a complicated and rich story. And I think one that if we're not fully aware of sort of the nature of biblical wisdom, we're going to be ill-equipped to handle it. So with that said, I think there's, there's five, there's a lot we could say about biblical wisdom, but I think there's five key features before we jump into Job that I just want to point out that I think are going to help us. So the first key feature is going to be the fear of Yahweh. This is the, the most basic and fundamental reality of the wisdom literature. So throughout these genres of, of the Bible, throughout the wisdom literature, this is the main refrain that we're going to see over and over again. And it's this idea that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, right? It's almost every one of the books of the wisdom literature has this idea as its sort of front and center idea. And there's going to be some, some different ways in which this idea gets applied. But at the end of the day, and even as we're going to see in this book, that idea really becomes the sort of crux upon which we're to understand the basic principles of what it means to live well in God's world. So you, you might ask, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Because that, that's not a, a term that I think initially, I think especially for us as uh, uh, Westerners, like we're not, we're not immediately drawn to that word or that phrase. It doesn't sound pleasant. Fear God, well, you know, uh, God is love. We should, you know, perfect love casts out all fear. Why do we fear God, right? And so you might have heard someone explain this concept and say, well, it's not, it's not a kind of like terror of God. You know, you don't fear God like you, like you fear, uh, you know, Freddy Krueger or something like that. He's not a monster. You're not afraid of him. You fear him because of your, your respect for him or your honoring of him, right? So you've heard that sort of distinction between respect versus terror. But most fundamentally, it's a, it's, a, it's a posture of reverence, right? It's a posture of heart that we have towards God. And it's one that ultimately is rooted in the, in the creator-creature distinction. So what I mean by that is it's rooted in the idea that, that God is God and we're not. And, and so the, the fundamental starting place of wisdom is, is a recognition that God, you are God, and everything that comes along with that, and I am not you, and, and I am your creature, and I exist under you and for you and, and as a result of you. So it's that deep recognition that, that God is our creator. He's our sustainer. 
Uh, he rules all things. He has a right to govern us and his world according to his wisdom. And it, and it entails a humble recognition of our responsibility to live as his creatures and his creation. This is really the, the heart of biblical wisdom. So before we can ask any other questions about what it means to live well in God's world, when we walk out in God's world, to be wise is to, first and fun, most fundamentally, to be someone who recognizes, God, you are God. I am not. This is your world, and I'm going to approach it in that framework. Right? So that's the basic sort of presupposition of the wisdom literature. I've always, um, as studying the Old Testament, fear of the Lord is a euphemism for salvation. Uh, um, rather sure. than saying believe on Jesus, they would say fear the Lord. Uh, Job 28, 28, it says, this is wisdom, fear God, this is understanding, and turn away from evil, which is the definition of repentance. And, yeah. Um, that's just been my study. I was just going to share that. Yeah. I could be wrong. So I think there's a, there's a sense in which, there's a sense in which it becomes a euphemism for all kinds of things. So I think it definitely becomes a, a shorthand for uh, um, loving the Lord, recognizing the Lord as who He is. And certainly um, we can talk more about that. But that's, that's, that's in the context of the wisdom literature, um, when you want to sort of suss out what is the, what are the, what's the wisdom literature trying to communicate with this concept, most fundamentally it is a recognition of God's godliness and our sort of creatureliness. So it's, it is to have a thoroughly God-centered view of reality. It's to view all of reality as God's and, and as us as a part of that. So wisdom is rooted in this sort of posture. And therefore, to know wisdom and to be wise is to be one who recognizes that there's not a single aspect of our lives that, that falls outside of the purview of who God is and what his purposes are. And second to this is really another key feature that kind of comes easily right alongside of it. And that's this recognition that if God is God and, and He is creator and sustainer of all things, then this is His world. So this isn't just uh, some random place that we exist in. It's, it's His creation. He created it. And in that sense, it plays by His rules, not ours. It's not a, a random uh, sequence of events. There's not, there's not just sort of, uh, it's not something that exists. It's not a thing that He, he even just created and sort of let go to, to be its own thing. Rather, it is... Uh, it is a just and orderly world that he governs and sustains. And so this is really a second key aspect of understanding the, the wisdom literature is that, that to be wise is to ultimately recognize that God's world is governed according to his wisdom. So that there's a kind of, uh, you know, we could say a pattern or a grain to the world or to reality. That there's a way in which things work, generally speaking. And that way is governed by God's own wisdom. And to be wise itself is about trying to discern that pattern of that grain of life underneath God and sort of within recognition of God, and then doing what we can to live with that grain, so to speak. So it's a recognition that, that there's a way of this world, and, and I want to try to, to be in that way, that there's a stream of the way the world works, and the, and the Proverbs are going to sort of unpack this in all kinds of ways, and we'll see this as we get to them, how, it, how they unpack this idea of, you know, there's a way of the world. It's, it's most principally expressed in the sort of third key feature, which is this sort of two paths picture that you see most prominently laid out in Proverbs. It's the idea that there is really two paths to life, right? There's the path of wisdom or there's the path of folly. To be on the path of wisdom is to sort of live within the grain of God's providence. It's to it's to live within the created order as it's been outlined. 
So as we start to recognize in wisdom, this is God's world and, and he governs it according to his purposes. And I want to live with that purpose and live in that way. We are living in a wise way according to God's wisdom. And the, and the Psalms are, or the Proverbs are going to show us that to generally speaking, to sort of seek to live in that way is to live ultimately a life that will result in, in blessing and, and life. Those are going to be the two sort of uh, categories that there's a, there's a benefit to living well in God's world. It will go well with us when we, when we live well in God's world. But counter to that, <clears throat> Proverbs is going to show us that there's a path of, of folly, right? There's a way that we can live against the grain. There's a way that we can choose to not go with the grain. And, and just as we've kind of, if you've ever tried to swim upstream in a current, we realize that to do that, to sort of, sort of kick against the grain, so to speak, it doesn't go well. It's, it's not easy to do. And so the, the, the idea there is that when we choose the path of folly by ultimately choosing to ignore wisdom or not pursue wisdom, that we're living against God's created order or God's providence. And the end result ultimately for that is going to be death or ruin. So those are going to be the two consequences. And again, it's important to recognize, though these aren't necessarily separate from, from the categories that we looked at in the law of sort of blessing and curse, they're less about you know, the, the morality, sort of a, a kind of almost cosmic morality to the things and, and more about, you know, just the basic way in which things are to work. You can think about this on a really simple level and just say, you know, if I walk outside and jump off of the roof of this building, I'm going to get hurt. There's a way the world works that God has designed it to work. And I can know that way. And if I choose to in foolishness, do something that clearly goes against the way in which God has created this world, it's not going to go well with me. So if I walk out in the middle of the woods and see a bear and walk up to the bear and think, hey, bear, and start, you know, messing with the bear, it's not going to go well with me, right? It's going to go badly. And, and, and so on and so forth. And so as you see this idea teased out in the wisdom literature, there's going to be numerous ways that this is brought out. So, you know, if a fool who, who attempts to to get by in life by cheating others and taking from them, well, he's going to ultimately reap the reward. He's going to, you know, those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. So there's a, there's a way that God's world works that we can, choose to, we can choose to go with that or we can choose to go against that. So that's the two-pass idea, right? And, that, and sort of deeply um, connected to that is this sort of other aspect of wisdom, which is that there is a pursuit of wisdom, right? So if there are, there's two paths that we can pursue, then the implication is that we can pursue wisdom or we can choose not to pursue wisdom, right? Wisdom is not just something that we're born with. It's not something that we, that we just naturally incline ourselves to, that there is a way of, of wisdom and folly and that we are, we are in some sense responsible to pursue wisdom and to gain it in order to be able to live well in God's world. That, that sort of by nature, the idea that, that the wisdom literature is going to com- communicate is that we are born fools. We are born without wisdom, that we need to be taught wisdom. We need to gain it in order to understand how to live well in God's world. So it's something we pr- continually pursue. But how do we do that? Well, the wisdom literature throughout its different um, aspects is going to show us that we can gain wisdom a number of ways. We can gain it through experience. So that's going to be a key aspect to how we gain wisdom. So we can observe the world and we can make sense out of the world just by observing it. But what's going to be key again is what is the beginning of wisdom? Well, it's that recognition of the fear of God, right? So the only way that observation of the world 
can be a source of wisdom for us is if we start with that presupposition, well, this is God's world and God governs it. And he governs it in a way that, is a, that makes sense according to his character. So that observation is only really going to work. We're only going to be able to make helpful observations with that assumption, right? Because the world, apart from this wisdom, there's a kind of worldly wisdom that tries to make sense out of the world by observation, right? This is what most wisdom that we have ever encountered that's not biblical wisdom is. It's a, an attempt to make sense out of God's world apart from God. And it, and it can't be done for them any other way but through observation. And yet the observation that, that, that they'll make oftentimes is skewed. Why? Because it doesn't begin with this recognition that this is God's world. So in some sense, we might see that there's a, there's a truthfulness to some of those observations at times, but because it fails to take into account this key aspect of the fear of the Lord, then on some level it misinterprets or misunderstands the nature of wisdom or the nature of God's world. But we don't just gain it through experience. It can also be taught to us. So others can gain wisdom and they can, they can pass that wisdom down to us, right? So Proverbs is going to be a father teaching his son in wisdom. The king is to lead the people by teaching them what's wise. So not all of us have to go through the painful experiences of, oh, don't do that. I've learned that's not the way to do that. I've been married for 15 years and I've learned that's not how you do that in your marriage. We can have other people come in and say, hey, let me let, me let you know I've learned from experience and from God's word this is the way of wisdom. You should listen to, to my instruction. You should heed what I'm telling you so we can be taught wisdom by others. But again, this is always to be weighed by what? By, by this fear of the Lord. But then ultimately, the wisdom literature is going to make it clear that God is our true source of wisdom. All wisdom comes from Him because it's His wisdom that governs how the world works. And so if we're to understand how the world works, well, ultimately, we need to understand what God says both in His Word and through prayer and, and through all these different sources, we're, we're enjoined in the wisdom literature to seek wisdom, to seek it like the most precious thing that exists and ultimately seek it from God, recognizing that God alone is the source of wisdom. And so um, really this brings us to the last feature, which is that wisdom, what purpose does it serve, right? And we've kind of circled around this a number of times, but but the idea here is that wisdom, it's, it's meant to serve this purpose of providing us with that knowledge, both general and specific, for how we're to live in God's world, right? So wisdom's concerned with that, those general principles of the world, but, but again, it's important to recognize that it's not just sort of knowledge for knowledge's sake. Those general principles are given to us so that we know how to live in particular purposes and circumstances in our lives, right? So, you know, when we think of, of those questions that we asked earlier, it's wisdom that, that teaches us, generally speaking, uh, how we're to understand the world so that when we come to specific questions about who we should marry, what jobs we should pursue, what we should eat for dinner, what colleges we should go to, we can take the, the wisdom that we've learned from God's Word and from others and from our experiences and we can make sense out of those decisions and we can make good decisions that are wise. Now. I simplified what is really a complex process there because that's the meat. This is the meat and potatoes of wisdom, right? This is the, this is the, when we talk about like, okay, what's the point of wisdom? Well, it's, it's all of these kinds of things. It's that difficult process, that laborious process at times where we sit with a decision and we filter all of the, the information and the wisdom that we've gained from others and, and situations and counsel that we've received. And we think carefully about decisions. And if you're like me, Maybe that's even the case for what you have for dinner, but most of us, it's at least the case when we make major decisions. You know, if we're wise, 
we think very carefully. We try to bring all of these things into consideration. And that's really the goal of, uh, and the point of the use of wisdom, to help not just give us general knowledge of the world, but to help lead us in, in understanding how we're to approach all the particular aspects of our lives that, that don't seem to have any sort of clear, the Bible says, don't do this, do that. Right? And these are the kinds of categories that we often debate as Christians. These are the kinds of categories that we get into and we say, well, so-and-so thinks this, and the Bible doesn't say this clearly, but so that, right, this is where wisdom comes in and is essential for us to helping us understand how we're to make sense out of sort of the particularities where it seems, you know, in one sense you could say, well, the Bible doesn't tell us, you know, what, what's the answer here? The Bible doesn't give us a clear depiction of that, but it does give us all of these, these rich and wonderful principles that we're to bring to bear and, and to use to make sense out of, out of God's world so that we can make the best decision we possibly can. So all that said, I think we can kind of wrap our heads around a definition of wisdom. And I think we, if, I, uh, if I could offer that, I think it would be something like this. I think biz- biblical wisdom is really the knowledge and skill of living well in God's world as God's creature under God's providence. So that is sort of the, the basic definition of what is, it, what is biblical wisdom. Now before we jump into Job, any, any questions on any of that so far? Just I know that's a lot of, hey, wisdom, okay. But you know, hopefully that... James, I think, what is it, James chapter 3? Mm-hmm. talks about demonic wisdom and God's wisdom. He said, but wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness. Where does this righteousness come from? Is sown in peace by those who make peace. And that's how God defines wisdom for us. He says it looks like and that, if we're following that, we're going to make these decisions that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I think that J- James is a great book in terms of the New Testament. It's really sort of the wisdom book of the New Testament in a lot of ways. It's a book that deals deeply with these, with these questions of, hey, if I'm a Christian, what does it look like for me to, to live well in God's world? And what does it look like for me to do that in relationship to other Christians? And so James is dealing with a lot of those kinds of issues. So it's no surprise as he comes to the end of the book that, that I think you see this strong note of recognition of James that, hey, this is God's world and, and you live in it and you're his creature. And, and if you start with those, those presuppositions, then the way you approach your issue, the issues that you guys are having are going to be radically different than what you're, what you're doing. And there's all kinds of ways that we could, we could sort of unpack that. And, and that's the great thing about wisdom is it's, it's complex and it's, you can unpack it in so many beautiful and wonderful ways. Any other questions? Any thoughts on, on wisdom? Any, anything that... Oh. Amen. Amen. Well, with that, with that prayer, I will, uh, I'll agree with that. And we'll, we'll move into Job, and we'll consider how Job fits into that picture. So, um, as I said, we have a whole genre of Scripture, right, that's going to deal exclusively with, with these kinds of questions. And Job's really, the, in our English Bibles, it's the first book that we come to uh, that's going to deal with this, this issue of wisdom. And that's really the, the primary theme of Job. 
Uh, it's not a theme that you necessarily initially think, oh, Job's a book about wisdom. Um, but, but that is the case. That's exactly what Job's about. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, it's, uh, it's a book that in some sense is kind of interesting, as we're going to see here in a minute, because the way it teaches us about wisdom is going to be really unique and really, uh, in some ways, Job is going to deal with, with sort of the exception to the rules of wisdom in some sense, or it's going to show us that there's a kind of wisdom to the world that defies our initial, even, even for those of us who fear God, that defies our initial ability to sort of make sense out of it. And so, you know, when we talk about the context of, of Job, um, you know, Job does seem to be telling a story that's rooted in historical fact, right? So other biblical authors are going to treat Job as a historical person. Um, but the historical context is really hard to pin down. We don't entirely know kind of when and where. We know, we know it sort of takes place in Uz, and there's some debate about where Uz is in, in relationship to Israel and what timeline we're dealing with. And it seems that based on the names alone that at least most of Job and his friends are probably not Israelites. Uh, but we don't, again, we don't know what the relationship that, uh, of Job is to any of the other biblical characters or any of the rest of the story. And so in some senses, we've been sort of working through this story systematically. You know, Job really is like a step back and a step up because in, in, in a historical context sense, there's a kind of universality and a timelessness to Job's message because we don't have a lot of these details. And that's really fascinating because honestly, a lot of the wisdom literature functions that way. As you go through it, you notice that there's this sort of sense in which, well, it seems like I generally know like around when this took place, but then I don't actually know who or what or, or how. We don't really know. We think maybe this guy wrote it in this time, but, but we don't know for certain. And, and all of that lends itself to this sort of, again, universality and kind of timelessness to the wisdom literature. You know, just as we can kind of pick up the Psalms and not necessarily have to sit there and think of the, all of the particular context behind it and just appreciate the the beauty of what the psalm is saying. There's a similar way where we can just pick up a book like Job, and it's, it's, a, it's a timeless book. All of us can read it and go, I understand these questions. I understand this world. I understand this, this issue in some sense. All right, so we don't have these details, but in terms of the wisdom literature itself, um, you know, if we think of Proverbs as kind of wisdom outlined in a basic and clear sense, it said Job and, and Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes are kind of going to be qualifiers to wisdom. They're going to help come in and say, hey, what does it look like to pursue wisdom when the order of God's world doesn't make sense? When we say, hey, if God is wise and he orders his world in a way that makes sense, well, how, does he, how is that true when I'm looking at the world and it doesn't seem like he's governing his world in a way that makes sense, right? So in the book of Job, really it's, it's a book that deals with this question of how do we pursue wisdom when suffering and evil seem to, to make it far from a just and orderly world? How do we fear God and pursue wisdom when suffering doesn't seem to make any sense? Where's the wisdom in that? How do we fear God as good and wise when He allows such senseless and evil suffering to exist at all? So these are deep, serious questions that Job is dealing with. It's, he's confronting these sort of immediate limitations in some sense of... of what we might think of, if you took all those categories that I brought for you before, you might say, hey, that's all well and good, but, you know, what do I do with suffering? And Job's going to immediately kind of dive into this issue, and he's going to do it in a, in a mature and serious way. So I think with that said, really the primary theme of this book, and, and I think the thing that I want us to see as we, as we just briefly spend the rest of our time considering this book, 
is, is this. You know, Job is wanting us to see that we should fear God because he alone comprehends the wisdom behind his design for suffering and evil in this world. All right, so let me say that again. We should fear God, not just despite suffering and evil, but because he alone comprehends the wisdom behind his designs for suffering and evil in this world. That's the idea that really this book drives towards. It's the, it's the thing that is going to be the most, I think, clear by the time we get to the end of the book. Um, and so that said, let's just sort of jump right in. So you have um, in chapters one through two an inciting incident, right? You have the prologue that sort of sets the stage and tells us what is happening in this book and, and why in some sense is it happening and what are the key pieces of information that we need to know. So in chapters one through two, we're introduced to all the major players. We're introduced to Job. He's a, he's a prosperous guy. He has a large estate. He's the greatest of all the peoples of the East. We're told he's a blameless man, a man of integrity, a man who worships God and fears God and turns away from evil. God even describes him as saying he's, there is none like him in all the earth. All right, so I'm, I don't think it's a stretch to say Job's probably the godliest guy on the planet at this time. Maybe, maybe. But at least during this time, I think it's safe to say God points Job out and says, this is the godliest guy on the planet. And it's not a, that's not a hyperbole. It's true. Like, he's genuinely blameless God. God's the one who points these things out, right? But we're also introduced to this, to this heavenly council. So Satan presents himself to God. Um, but then God presents Job to Satan. And, and immediately, the story starts to take an interesting kind of turn. Because God's God who points this out. And, and Satan responds to Job or to God by saying, Okay, yeah, Job fears you, but you know, does he fear you because of you know, he fears you for no reason, right? Well, he fears you not because of you, but because you've blessed him, because you've given him all kinds of good stuff. If you take it from him, he'll curse you to your face. So the implication is he doesn't fear you because you're worthy to be feared. He fears you because you've blessed him. And if you remove all those blessings, then he won't fear you anymore. In some sense, this is almost like a direct challenge to not just to God, but to wisdom itself. It's to say, hey, God, like anybody's going to fear you if that means they're blessed. No one's going to fear you if, if that's actually just difficult to do. So shockingly, you know, you could almost think that God being God could go, you don't know what you're talking about. Just get out of here. But that's not what happens. Right. God knows that's not the case with Job. And yet he entertains this, and he permits Satan to strike Job. And in the, in the series of sort of two stages, right, Job loses everything. He loses his family, his wealth, and then eventually his health. And the central question of these two chapters as we we're going through it is, is Satan right? You know, is Job going to curse God? And of course, by the time we get to the end of chapter 2, we see the answer is no, he's not. He's going to, you know, contrary to what his wife says, he's going to maintain his integrity and he's going to receive this from God. And so the prologue really gives us three insights that I think are key for us as we sort of try to assess the arguments that, that proceed from here. And that's this. For one, we know something about the reason for Job's suffering, right? So we know it's not because of sin. That is key for us to understand. Job is genuinely an innocent sufferer in this. He has not done something to encourage this. He has not done something 
that has justified in some sense uh, the, this incitement. He hasn't, there's no sin that God is punishing him for. There's no discipline necessarily that God is trying to work in him. That's not, you know, this idea that Job's blameless. Again, remember, this isn't just somebody's assessment. This is God's assessment. It is really, it should be very clear that when Job starts protesting his innocence, he's telling the truth. And again, as we're going to see later on, God's going to agree that he told the truth, that he was right and Job's friends were wrong. So, you know, Job is genuinely blameless in this. This isn't a matter of perfection or sinlessness, but his faithfulness to God. It's, it's the idea that this is not, this suffering is not a direct response by God to some specific sin in Job's life. It is not a direct response to any sort of specific kind of discipline that God is needing to correct in Job's own life and in his own heart. Job is a godly man who fears God. This suffering has nothing to do with something that Job has done. That's crucial because it's going to teach us and give us the, you know, the, the key principle that Job's suffering isn't retributive, right? Because that's going to be, as we're going to see, that's the main thing that, that the wisdom of his friends are going to keep harping on. But we also, again, I think, see something of the, of the nature of the source of Job's suffering. So the author is keying us in behind the scenes to see some things that Job doesn't see. I think in doing that, we know where is the suffering coming from if it's not from Job's, uh, you know, his own sin. Well, we know it comes from Satan, first and foremost, directly, and that's important. But then it, we also know, in some sense, indirectly, God is responsible. So this is a question that the book of Job is not going to be shy about addressing head on, that God bears some level of involvement in Job's suffering. It's the question that Job himself is going to wrestle with throughout the whole rest of the book. And it's not a question that I think God tries to ignore or shy away from. I think it's a book that that question the book is throwing right in our face. What do we do? Because whatever we want to say, even if we want to look at suffering as a direct result, not of God, but of Satan, God's still involved. In some sense, God is still permitting that to happen. And how do we make sense out of the wisdom of that? Is God doing something wrong? I was in high school, you know, the very first time I read this book, uh, I was in high school and I, I was speaking to a friend of mine in class, who's a girl. I said, have you ever read the book of Job? She goes, oh yeah, I love that book. It, it just, it's so helpful because it proves that even God makes mistakes. And I thought, I don't know if what this book entirely means, but that can't be what this book is about, right? And that's, that's, that's the kind of worldly wisdom that we might come to when we approach this book and think, God must be making a mistake here. Like, this can't be right. But that's, that's not what Job is teaching us, right? So we also, we also see something of the result of Job's suffering, right? So he doesn't turn away from God. He continues to fear God. And that's going to be crucial as we move throughout this book because it's, it's his fear of God that's going to continue to kind of act as a ballast and really sustain him in the midst of his grief. And so as we, as we turn, like I said, to the, to the rest of the book, the bulk of the book is really made up of these, uh, what do you almost call a kind of debate, wisdom debate between Job and his friends. So there's an initial expression by Job of grief in chapter three, right? So Job's friends show up after he's experienced all this. They sit with him silently. They're shocked at his suffering. They're sitting with him for a week. But then after a week, Job bursts out with this sort of gut-wrenching expression of grief, and he curses the day he was born. He laments his birth, and he sort of muses through this. And, and the key expression that's revealed in his grief is, what, what's the point of this? Like, I, I've been faithful to God, and, and I don't understand. Like, none of this makes sense. I haven't done anything. Like, God has given me life, and he's blessed me. 
Why has he done that just to turn against me and to crush me? It would have been better if I'd never been born. I mean, what point is there in this kind of suffering? Why would God bless someone who, and love them and then just all of a sudden turn against them? And so Job is, is grieving and he's dealing seriously with this. But this sparks a kind of response in his friends because they just, they have a, a as we're going to see, a sort of faulty wisdom. And they think, well, Job, I don't, that, maybe that's not, you know, initially they're going to sort of start, like, John, that's, maybe Job, that's not the best response to what you're dealing with. You know, maybe, maybe you've obviously done something here, but you're a good guy, you know, but uh, you, you've probably done something here and God's just. And so this is probably your fault. So, you know, you're, you're a good guy. You should recognize that and sort of turn from that. And, and so this, this expression of grief, it really sets off these debates. You know, you're gonna, we're going to have this cycle of three, three cycles of debates where Job's going to speak, a friend is going to answer, Job's going to respond, and then it keeps going, so on and so forth. And the heart of these debates is really this question of making sense out of the wisdom of Job's suffering. So they're, they're all trying to ask really the same question, which is, what is the wisdom behind this? What's, what wisdom is is God using to make sense, you know, to make, to determine this? You know, what is it? What, why is this a good thing? Why is this a wise thing? And so, um, you know, it's not an expression of two f- or three or four people sort of sitting around and genuinely trying to help each other understand this, their friend's grief. No, it, I mean, it pretty quickly turns into a hostile debate where these friends are, are, are dead set on proving to Job that he, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. Right? And so we, we see this as the faulty wisdom of Job's friends is brought out. And we know they're faulty, their wisdom is faulty for all kinds of reasons. But, but to begin with, you know, when we think about what their basic approach is, as Job is bringing out these grief-filled questions, you know, like I said, they're going to start with some level of sensitivity, but by the end, they're really just all three of them very hostile. You know, the, the debate breaks down by the end of this, and they're kind of like, you know, Job, we've been pretty patient with you and you're not listening to us. So, hey, if God's going to punish you and God's going to destroy you, then that's, I guess, what's going to happen. And so by the end of the debate, one of the friends even gives up before the debate ends and doesn't even want to offer. A, he, and he is, not surprisingly, the most hostile one from the beginning. So he kind of gets to a point where he's just like, no, I'm done. Yes. Uh, and so you have really just this, this, this hostile, increasingly hostile debate between these two friends, right? And the basic argument that they're putting forward is this. Of course, God's wise and just, right? This is his world and he's just and he's wise. And so you're suffering and that must be because God's punishing you because you've done something to deserve it, right? So the wise pursue wisdom and they receive reward and the fools pursue folly and they receive destruction. So you've received destruction. You must be a fool. You must be a sinner. You must have done something wrong. And yet the the naughty issue and I say naughty as in, you know, difficult. The, the difficult issue for Job is that he's, he's, he says to them repeatedly, you don't understand, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything. So that can't be right. What you're saying cannot be the case. There has to be some other way of understanding the situation. And, and they, don't, they don't want to have it. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. No, there's no other way to understand this. This is very simple. It's cut and dry. But wisdom rarely is, is cut and dry. And so the, the debate really sort of hinges on this back and forth on this key issue, right? And so, though I think there's a, there's a fourth friend that's going to enter in at the, at the end of the debate, and there's some theories about the role that he plays in the story. But I think either way, it doesn't, you know, where you come down on his role in the story, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, all four friends really play a similar role. You know, they represent um, 
a kind of human attempt to answer Job's concerns and make sense out of his suffering while upholding the wisdom and justice of God, right? So they're not, they're not totally rejecting that idea. They're trying to do, do honor to it. And yet they're not taking into account, in some sense, the reality that, that, that Job's telling the truth, that maybe wisdom is more complicated in the situation than they want to, want to admit. And so we see this as, as we pursue Job's dialogues, and, and they're rich and complex, and they're filled with grief. I mean, it's a picture of a man who is really dealing with some very heavy and serious questions. And, in, and at times, it's an emotional roller coaster. I mean, you know, this isn't a cold and philosophical debate for Job. Like, this is deeply personal. It is extremely personal for him. And it's not because of the stuff he's lost. And I think this, again, speaks to the sort of beauty of the heart of the central sort of debate between Satan and Job. But, but it's personal for Job because he's, he is realizing that maybe God's against me. God's become my enemy. And, and for Job, that is a far greater concern to him than what he's lost. The fact that the God he loves and he fears might be against him and might be his enemy. And he doesn't know why. Job is deeply, deeply grieved by that. And that only just sort of gets compounded when he's trying to wrestle through that. And I would argue, probably pretty convincingly, that Satan then turns from striking him to inhabiting his friends and making him even more miserable in their, in their arguments. Because Job's going to repeatedly say, with friends like these, you know, who needs enemies? You guys are just making this even worse. And, um, and there's some serious grief. You know, if you've ever experienced grief and you, you know how much worse it can be when someone comes in and doesn't, doesn't help you and doesn't know how to help you grieve well, and, but it really just makes that more difficult. And that's what he's experiencing. But his basic... His basic argument is, is simple at the end of the day. You know, I'm innocent. But if that's true, what does that say about God? Has he turned against me? Is he my enemy? Why won't he explain himself to me? Why won't he give me just an answer or an explanation so that I can be at ease, so that I can know that he understands me, that he cares about me, that, he's, that I'm not just like a tiny ant that he doesn't realize he's stepping on? You know, there are times where that's, that's really the kind of thing that Job's worried about. Maybe God's just so much bigger than I am. He doesn't even realize how painful this is. And so, you know, in light of this, we can kind of see how hollow those answers by his friends would be. But again, the fear of the Lord, I think for Job, is a beautiful kind of ballast. And it is constantly, just when you think Job's going to go too far, it's bringing him back. You know, he goes to some dizzying places, and at times he seems just trapped between dealing honestly with, with the fear of the Lord and the reality of his own suffering. And he's wrestling with this back and forth. But as he comes to the, to the end of his own sort of protest, he's going he's gonna to sort of lay it on the line and say, again, I'm innocent, and that's all I can say on the matter. But in chapter 28, he's going to come to this place where he asks one last crucial question in 28.20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and Death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. Despite Job's grief, right, his fear of the Lord, ultimately, he recognizes if there's anyone who can make sense out of this, it's God. My friends have failed to do that. I've failed to do that. But man, if God could just show up and explain this to me, I know I would understand it, and I know I wouldn't feel this way anymore, and I know I could trust God again. 
and I know that I could be okay even in the midst of this suffering. And so that's really what Job's banking on as you come to the end of his, his kind of protest is, okay, if God will just show up, we can sort this thing out. It'll be fine. God will tell me why he's doing this and then we'll be okay. And that's what he's banking on. And that's kind of what happens. God does show up, but he doesn't get the answer that he was expecting. Right? So when God shows up, we see a number of things. First, he rebukes his friends. So we know pretty clearly at that point, they don't know what they're talking about. That it is more complex than that. That Job hasn't done anything in some sense to deserve this. Their wisdom was faulty. But we also see God's response to Job. And there's really sort of uh, several aspects to this. But, but the key aspect of it is you know, God doesn't give Job a deep philosophical explanation for the reasons of his suffering, right? If you look at, at God's response to Job, it's not a, oh, well, let me explain, Job, how all this works, and let me show you what it means and why this is happening. No, God shows up and says, okay, you have questions for me, well, I have some questions for you. And, and God poses to Job a series of questions that kind of come in two waves. And in each wave, these questions are painting a vivid picture of what it means for God to rule his creation and, and to sustain his creation in ways that are utterly uh, in, incomprehensible to Job and to us. And, and it, the basic point of these seems to be this. Job, you can't comprehend for a fraction of a second the wisdom and power it takes for me to create and sustain this world. What makes you think you can comprehend the reason for your suffering? You couldn't do the most basic thing that I have to do when it comes to ruling and, and sustaining this creation. And Job starts to recognize the truth of this. He puts his hand on his mouth. He starts to realize, I am out of my depth. And my grief, I started to wade into some questions that I can't possibly understand. And the second wave in 40 and 41, it's, it's a little bit more perplexing. And there's some debates about what it means, but I think, you know, these picture of, of these two great beasts, Behemoth and Leviathan, at the end of the day, the, the, the point I think is the same, no matter where we land on what these, these creatures represent. It's the idea that, that you know, God is communicating to Job in light of his suffering and, and all the evil and the horror that he's experienced. I think God wants him to see that even the most terrifying and dangerous and potentially evil things that exist in creation are mere playthings or pets to God. And I think this really starts to put things into perspective for Job because he realizes, I don't understand what it means for God to be God and for God to have command over even suffering and evil in a way that he's still God and still good. And I can't begin to comprehend it. So Job starts to get to the place where he's realizing that what he needs isn't a, a philosophical or theological answer, right? What he needs is not a, a reason for his suffering, but to know on a deeper level the God behind his suffering. And, God's, and Job's response reinforces this idea, you know, that, that what he's seen is not an, so much an answer, but a vision of the glory of God as creator and sustainer. So he says in 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with knowledge? He's quoting God. 
Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful to me, which I did not know. Speaking, quoting again God, Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job's not just heard from God, he's seen God. And this seeing of God has made a profound effect on him. He fears God in a new way, a way that puts all of his suffering into perspective, not because it provides a clear answer to his suffering, but because it shows him that the God behind his suffering is so utterly incomprehensible that he couldn't even begin to understand the reasons for what's going on, even if he tried. You know, um, James gives us a good answer there. James chapter 5, verse uh, 11. He's talking about steadfastness. And he says, remember the steadfastness of Job. And then it says something that will blow your mind. That God is compassionate and merciful. And really what he's teaching Job is, I'm compassionate and merciful, Job. I'm God. Yeah, I do think he's teaching him that. I also think he's teaching him more than that. I think, yeah, I think, I think there's, I think there's a. He brought out there because Job's repenting. What, what is, what brings us to repentance? God, that's mercy, that's grace. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's for sure. You know, so, you, so he's showing him. You know, Job, you didn't know who I was, but I'm going I'm being merciful to you and compassionate by letting you go through all this suffering, so you can know more about me. And the greatest thing in life is to get to know more about the Lord Jesus. Christ. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, Job 23, 12. Yeah. Your word I have treasured more than the very food I eat. And that was his desire. His desire was to know God more, and God gave it to him through this. Yeah. Yeah, but I think Job's response for sure is, is showing us just um, part of the way that Job comes to know God is to know how much of God he cannot know. And so there's there's so much about God that in this picture that's presented, Job realizes the, the incomprehensibility of God's wisdom. So in some sense, what that means is this book is showing us that, that yes, we're, we're called to pursue wisdom and to understand God's world, but part of understanding God's world means recognizing there are things in this world that we will never understand because God only understands those things. And so that's the question that we, we close. You know, Job's fortune is restored and, and we're left to ponder you know, what is, what is it we've gained? What is the wisdom that we've gained in all this? Do we have an answer to Job's suffering? Not really, but that's the point. Job feared God, but that fear was intention throughout the whole book with this quest to understand the, the reasons behind his suffering. He tried to reason through it himself. His friends weren't any good. They didn't help. Finally, he came to the conclusion that maybe God was the only person who could give him an answer. But when God showed up, rather than giving him an answer... God pulled back the curtain on his providence and his sovereignty, and Job realized he was out of his depth. And that's significant because that is a satisfying resolution for Job. And so we have to ask, but why? Why is Job satisfied with that? Job and his friends have wrestled with this, even aspects of this question throughout the book. Why is it now that he sees God in this vision of God's glory that Job is content to rest in, in trusting God in his suffering? Well, I think there's two reasons. One of which is that I think he does see in a, in a clear way, through this depiction, that God is wise and just and sovereign and good, no matter what questions he might have about his suffering. So there's, there's an aspect to this vision in which he recognizes, well, okay, God's put to rest any questions I have about his goodness, his sovereignty, and his wisdom. 
But then again, I think as we step back and consider the whole point of, of everything we know in the book, I think Job comes to realize that he can fear God, not just despite his suffering, but because God is a God who can use suffering in ways that we could never comprehend. And I think Job is humbled by that reality, just as we're meant to be. So that when we, we see suffering and, and we experience suffering or we see it, and it doesn't make sense to us, rather than becoming angry with God, we're meant to be in awe of God. Because we're meant to respond to such senseless suffering and evil and say, I don't know how God could be wise and use this, but he must be. And so what kind of God must he be that he could be so incomprehensibly wise that even something like this could be being used for his purposes? And so in that sense, Job is teaching us that there is wisdom in God and his designs for suffering that we can't ever understand. And that should promote a kind of fear in us and humility in us. In that sense, it teaches us that we can fear God. Suffering teaches us to fear God in ways that few other things can because it's only through suffering that we learn on a deep level that there's wisdom that only God himself comprehends. And so as we think about just this, this lesson and, and really this question as we've been meditating on these books, how does this point us forward? Well, I think this book points us forward in hope by showing us in a key way that um, the God who uses surprising and unfathomable wisdom in suffering in, in Job's own life is the same God who uses the unfathomable suffering and wisdom of the cross. Right? This book is preparing us in some sense for the cross. It's showing us God is the kind of God who turns things that the world would look at as foolishness and weakness and, and no wisdom at all. Suffering and, and senseless suffering and that of an innocent sufferer. And yet that's the very wisdom of God at that moment. Most clearly on display. And we see this on the cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.20-25, 20 Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I think this is a mystery that, that Job itself is pointing us to. That in some sense, what looks to us like failure and, and weakness on God's part, and a lack of wisdom and a lack of justice is the very opposite. That we should be careful when we, when we look at situations like this and to assume that it speaks something to the, the lack of power and wisdom in God and justice in God, right? Because if that were the case, well, the cross wouldn't, would be foolishness to us, and it's not. But it is to the world, because this is what worldly wisdom sees when it sees this kind of suffering and says, how could God be wise and just and still govern his world when, when he does so in suffering? I mean, that doesn't make sense. But both in Job and through the cross, we learn that Though I think the pain of suffering can obscure the wisdom of God, it's perhaps never most cl uh, clearly on display than in the midst of suffering itself. So when we suffer, we know we can fear God because He alone comprehends the wisdom 
behind his designs for suffering and evil in this world. I think that's really the, 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 the thing that we're meant to take away from this book. Any questions, any, any thoughts or concerns as we, as we close out? You know, you know, I was going to say something. Um, in, in Romans chapter 8, it says those he, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And, and to know Christ is to know, we all know he's the suffering servant. You just described it. Mm-hmm. It, and to identify with him more is part of that is suffering. It helps us to know him more, especially, you know, First Peter chapter 4 says that if you, if you suffer for evildoing as a thief, as a murderer, um, as an evildoer, what, what happens to you, you deserve. But if you suffer for doing what's right, for obedience to me, the spirit of glory, of God's grace, is resting upon you. This mm-hmm. is precious in its eyes. And, it's, and when we take our circumstances that are out of our control and we're living for him and these things happen and look to Christ, it can actually draw us more to the image of Christ. And, and that is our goal, is mm-hmm. being conformed to the image of Christ. And so God uses suffering in a mighty, wonderful way. Um, and then uh, to address his friends, I, I think if any of you want to think about his friends, First Timothy chapter 6 I think verses 5 and 6 tells us, or well, the, the whole context, starting in chapter 1, talks about these, these people who are speaking about godliness and with contempt and pride, and they said their idea of godliness is for gain. And that's what his friends are basically saying. Yeah, this and, and then true. he goes on to say, but godliness with sat, being satisfied or content is great gain. For nothing we brought into this world, and nothing we will take out of this world. And that's what Job said, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it addresses his friends very much. And it, it, when you take the New Testament and Old Testament, it, they, they correlate wonderfully mm-hmm. in these answers. Yeah, there's a sense in which had Job uh, listened to his friends at any point and said, all right, fine, I'll just repent and get my stuff back. He would have proven Satan right. You know, he would have, to repent and to listen to the advice of his friends would have been to sort of show that he cared more about his stuff than he did God. But... Joe was very blessed, but he, he got way too what he wanted. Yeah, but I think the, the, the strange thing about the book is I don't think we're meant to, again, I don't no, think we're meant to see that as a... No, that's not what we're, we're supposed to get. Well, I think it just even confuses the picture in some ways even more because you realize, as Job says at the beginning, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yeah, let's see. Blessed book, Job. I, I do like the fact that he prayed for his friends. Yeah. And then, and then Elihu came along in the end, so there were four people. Yeah, Elihu's a tricky guy. Yeah, but they were all, we just got, Susan and I just got done, or Karen, 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 I'm so sorry. Oh, that's fine. I sound better every day. But anyway, we just got done with doing a Bible study with Dana and Paige. Excellent. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's it's a real book. It gets real real quick. And uh, yeah, definitely will. I think hopefully 
the more you meditate on it, the more you'll, you'll be able to walk away and just be kind of in awe of, of who God is. And well, our Bible study that we did in here, I've kept all the flyers, and I'm, I plan on going back through all the books and studying all the way through. That's great. That's excellent. I love that. All right. One more thing. Yeah. When Job said, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away, the Lord did not take away from him. Mm-hmm. The devil did. Yeah. The devil asked permission and was given yeah, permission, yeah. but it was the devil that robbed and stole and destroyed. Yeah, well, I think that's that's true. I think it's important to keep in context that that is directly Satan who's responsible. So Job wrestles with that, and at times he even seems to come close to recognizing God's not the one doing this, who is? And yet, I think the complicated picture in Job is, again, that as simple as I wish that were the answer, Job doesn't want to leave us with that as an option. And I think Job takes really seriously the role, whatever, however indirect we want, to, we want to see it, that God is playing in that because it's God who points that out. It's God who sort of points Job out and instigates the whole thing. And, and God plays a significant role in some sense in, in bringing this or at least allowing it to happen. And so... Yeah, that's a question that the book wants us to be confronted with and to deal honestly with. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? All right, let me pray for us. Lord, um, we, uh, similarly to Joe, God, we just recognize, God, that wisdom is, is to be found in you and you alone. And... God, there are so many times that we are trying to make sense out of our own lives and, and you have taught us so much and you have given us so much wisdom to do that. But yet there are times, God, we confess where we bump up against realities like Paul where we can just only confess, oh, the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable and inscrutable are your ways. God, we pray that when we, we are confronted with those realities, that we would not run from them or become frustrated, but that we would see those as an opportunity to worship you anew. And God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.